0: Uh, if you have a Bible tonight, we'll be in Luke chapter 7, uh, the end of this chapter. I've been kind of pushing down the road as we've uh, uh, made the previous passages last a little longer than normal because uh, I really wanted to and felt like this would be a great conversation to have uh, around Christmas time. Um, obviously, uh, the title of our message tonight is God and Sinner Reconciled, a line in one of our uh, favorite. Christmas carols, and I really think that's going to come to the surface tonight as we uh, have a conversation around a really unique passage of Scripture where a lot of the different themes that play in Luke come together uh, and really uh, allow for this really awesome exchange between Jesus and a religious leader uh, as the spotlight is set on a, a woman uh, who is unnamed but uh, is uh, you know, given uh, a lot of praise by Jesus for uh, the spirit that she embodies and puts on display. So I want to go ahead and just hear this passage uh, up front uh, and allow God to speak to us from this uh, text and through this text tonight. And I believe that we'll have a good time uh, around God's word. Uh, Luke chapter 7, verse number 36, through the end of that passage. Then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him or ask him over to dinner. And he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil and stood at his feet behind him weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil." Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this he spoke to himself saying this man if he were a prophet if he really was who he claims to be would know who in what manner what kind of woman this is who is touching him for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered and said to him of course Simon didn't asked this to Jesus. He thought it in his head, but never think things out in in your head in front of Jesus because he always reads your mind and he usually responds to you without you wanting him to respond. Jesus answered him and said, Simon, I have something to say to you. (laughs) Simon probably had heard this happened before um, with other Pharisees and other people. Teacher, say it. Go ahead and get it out. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50 And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, well, that's a peculiar parable that you're telling me, Jesus. But I suppose, first of all, who would forgive someone's debt? That's crazy. I would never do that. Who would do that? That would be a very uh, overly generous thing to do. Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. I suppose, but that would never happen. And he said to him, you have rightly judged. And he turned to the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? And of course, Simon said, of course I see this woman. I don't know why she's doing it in my house. And, and we believe this was probably an outdoor uh, kind of veranda, an outdoor patio area uh, that, that would have allowed for her to kind of come without having to go and knock on the door because they clearly wouldn't have let the woman in if she had knocked on the door. Uh, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me neither water for my feet, but she washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore, I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loves much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Or to whom, better translation there is, to whom sees their sin as a light thing, as a small thing, doesn't seem to reciprocate any love back. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Now, he'd already forgiven her sins. She already felt that forgiveness, but he was kind of rubbing salt in the wound of this Pharisee and his friends that were all watching with, with great ire. He says, because if they were wondering if she's really forgiven or not, he pronounces her forgiven, and those that sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins or thinks he has the power to say to this woman whom we have deemed irredeemable, who is this man? thinks he can say to someone, your sins are forgiven. Then he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go now in peace. Now, this passage brings to light one of the great controversies that Followed Jesus around. And not that it was a problem, but it was problematic from the religious people's perspective. This passage uh, really deals with one of the greatest issues the religious leaders continually have with Jesus throughout the Gospel of Luke. Luke particularly spotlights this. In Luke, we see Jesus having dinner with the Pharisees, but we also see him uh, being present with sinners, or as they called them, sinners. uh, One of the greatest things that we see on display in Luke's Gospel is the religious leaders are very Upset with Jesus associating with and accepting people that they labeled. As sinners. Now we'll notice a few times in this passage uh, there in verse number 39, uh, we, we see the Pharisee thinking to himself, she is a sinner. We see Luke um, refer to this woman um, who was a sinner in verse 37. Of course, that was how she was labeled. And and again, we, we see this woman has has is, is labeled. Uh, and if you could really change this to capital S, this is a label that they would have given her. Um, now, to us, this word does not carry near the hopeless weight that it carries. Back then, which of course is because Jesus has made a difference and changed things. But in those days, however, that this was a label that set someone apart as the worst of the worst. Uh, while it was understood that everybody sinned. To be called a sinner, and if you read the Gospels, very few people, but certain people, particular people, are labeled as sinners. Everybody sins, but there is a group of people, a class of people, whether they're immoral or whether they're tax collectors is pretty much the two categories that you hear over and over again. They are labeled as sinners, which really meant from the Jewish perspective that there is nothing redeemable about this person. This person is beyond repair. They are beyond redeemable. There is nothing redeemable about this person. Now, the Greek word for sinner that's used in the Gospels, um, that when, when they call someone a sinner, it, it's a word that has the strongest sense of condemnation possible. It's where we get the words depraved and detestable from, which are pretty strong words, aren't they? Uh, it carries a message of completely missing the mark and falling short of the standard that God has set. Now, we as Christians, we would say, well, isn't that what we say about everybody? Aren't we all sinners? Yes, that's what we understand, we believe. But the Jewish religion believed that there were different degrees and different tiers of sinfulness. So when they labeled someone sinner, they were saying with the strongest notion of judgment, this person is beyond help or hope. Now, one of the major plot devices that is used in the middle portion of Luke's gospel is we see Jesus, it's almost like every other chapter. One chapter, he's with the Pharisees. One chapter, he's with the, with the sinners or surrounded by sinners. But every once in a while, they come together. Luke 7, it happens. In Luke 15, it happens. And they come together, and, and in this chapter particularly, we have Jesus dining with the Pharisees, and somebody lets this woman in, the, in their community or in their presence, or somehow she gets into the situation Um, which really uh, throws them for a loop. And and probably, probably, if it would not have been Jesus at the table, they would have stoned this woman or had this woman arrested, and and beyond that, probably even worse. But because Jesus was there, they wanted to see what would happen. They kind of were curious, what's he going to do, or what's he going to let this woman do, and what's he going to do with her if she, you know, so much as touches him or all that. So they were really sitting there, you know, just seething, thinking, we don't like this, but we kind of want to see what happens, because we kind of want to be able to use this against Jesus so they kind of were very manipulative that way the religious leaders they really wanted Jesus to be on their side their side. They believed much of what he said. Now, if you read the, the, the Gospels and you know kind of the history of the Jewish religion, the Pharisees had a lot in common with Jesus. They had the most in common with Jesus compared to the Sadducees and the other groups of religious leaders. The Pharisees, they had a lot in common with Jesus and they liked a lot that he said. However, when he would go in fellowship with the other side, when he would go in fellowship with people that were not like them, and this is a big red flag, if somebody only likes you if you do what they say you should do, they don't really like you and you should probably get away from them, right? That's free advice that isn't Christmas themed. But if somebody only wants you to be around people that agree with them politically, religiously, all that stuff, they're probably not really a good person to be around. They're probably manipulative and and probably have some stuff that they need to get right about their hearts. They're probably like the Pharisees if you wanna get down to it. Um, The Pharisees were not happy when Jesus hung out with people that they didn't like. They felt slighted. They felt like Jesus was somehow you know, turning a, a nose to them and, and, and they felt like they were less approved because of that. And, and let me explain. They related to God on a basis of merit and works. The Pharisees felt like they were justified by what they did. And if you were to ask a Pharisee, you know why are you employed why does our tax dollars keep you employed because that's what how it worked the pharisee would say to you well my job is to be good because i'm going to be the best person i can be and if god decides to do something in our community i'm going to be the first person to notice it which is why the pharisees were trying to get close to jesus because they wanted to be able to claim him in case they decided to like him Uh, which is why nicodemus went by night so the pharisees they believed that their job was to be good and if they were good enough god would say well done thou good and faithful servant so So they believed that they were justified by their works so when Jesus sat down with them they felt like they they liked that because they thought well if he's from God he's with us then that must mean we're doing something right and that must mean God's happy with us but when he went across the street and hung out with the people that they would have condemned well that began to poke holes in their theology because if Jesus is sitting with them as much as he's sitting with them If he's hanging out with sinners and Pharisees, then that doesn't say much about the Pharisees, does it? It made the Pharisees feel weak and insecure because what they thought would elevate them wasn't any merit to them anymore when he would hang out with people that they would judge and condemn. So clearly the religious people, the Jewish religion had a lot that they were wrong about if we're just being straight, Um, they thought their connection with God was based on works, based on their own merit, based on their own status. They wrongly saw their sin, this is big, they saw their sin as less offensive to God as, as other people's sin. And this is where it kind of hits close to home with us religious folks. I'm, I'm one, and this bothers me sometimes, because sometimes I like to think that I sin, of course I sin. If you were to ask a Pharisee, do you sin? Well, yes, we sin. But the Pharisees thought, like we do, and we don't do this intentionally, it's just kind of how religion wires us. The Pharisees thought, well, we sin, but not as bad as they sin." right? Let's be honest. We all do that, right? I'm a sinner, but I'm not that kind of sinner. And these people had, had, had kind of looked around society and labeled certain people as capital S sinners. Oh, you're a tax collector. You're the worst. Oh, you're an immoral person. You you know, you've, you went through some relationships that have were not worked out. Must be your fault. You you you, you, you are, you know, in an unruly or unkosher walk, walk of life or, you know, profession. You know, they labeled them as sinners. They weren't allowed into the temple or onto the temple grounds. If you got to the temple, it was because they were gonna stone you. We've read those stories in the Gospels before. Um, So the Pharisees, they, uh, they they shamefully condemned others while finding ways to excuse themselves. And that's how religion works, isn't it? Let me just tell you a secret. Religion would be bankrupt without that little line. They shamefully condemned others while finding ways to excuse themselves. In knocking other people down, they had somebody to stand on and feel better and look higher because that's what religion does. It doesn't help us. It just makes us have somebody to stand on, someone that we push down in the dirt to make ourselves look better. And And that's what they did to these other classes of people. They felt better about themselves by having somebody else to look down on. Yeah, I'm not perfect, but look at them. I mean, hey, at least I could be doing better. So... This is how religion teaches us, if we're being honest, not just them, us, to understand sin and salvation. We are taught that some sin is worse than other sin. That's what religion, that's how religion operates. Some sin is worse than other sin. Now, of course, there are consequences that vary from one sin to another. But in terms of the the economy of God, we know that that's hogwash. But they taught some sin is worse than other sin. If we pay close attention, if we pay close attention to how religion ranks sin and I think you'll agree if we pay close attention most of the sin that is considered the most vile pertains to lifestyles that are mostly foreign to us that's how religion works religion makes a bunch of straw men out of people that they would never even have any dealings with The religion, religion says the sins that are the worst are the sins that we've never struggled with, or maybe they're the ones they struggle with the most, but want to kind of make a big deal about to try to, you know, push the guilt off. Also, usually we are far more critical. Here's the thing about religion. This is what the Pharisees did. They were far more critical of outward sins than they were of inward sin, far more critical of outward sins than they were of inward sins that may well be the greater root cause. Now, I'm not going to read all these scriptures and didn't have time to put them on the screen tonight, but I want to, in the notes, I've got a passage there I want you to refer to and you can look at this later. But I'll reference it. In Matthew 5, Matthew 15, Jesus is having a big conversation with the religious leaders. Um, In Matthew 15, Jesus outright calls out the Pharisees. He said, these guys are hypocrites. They draw nigh to God with their lips, but their hearts are far off. I'm glad you know how to quote it and sing it and say it when you're in the building, but I'm more concerned about your heart that doesn't look any different than the people you won't let in. I'm more concerned about the heart that is far from me. Now, then Jesus gets into this kind of argument with them about, well, you know, what defiles a person? And Jesus says, it's not what goes in, but what comes from within that defiles you. And that confuses the disciples and they're trying to, you know, they, they, they make it kind of silly for a minute. And then Jesus says, I'll tell you the straight of it, that from the heart... Proceeds evil thoughts Matthew 15 verse 19 and 20 for out of the heart comes evil thoughts murders adulteries fornications thefts false witnesses blasphemies these are the things that defile a man from within comes the sin so Jesus again he wasn't saying that those outward things weren't bad they of course are legitimately terrible and they, and they do a lot of bad things and hurt a lot of people and God's not happy with that But Jesus was trying to get the Pharisees to realize their own hearts were just as sinful because they could not get the help he offered them if they did not realize this. Jesus addresses the issue and identifies sin within all of us that leaves us equally condemned. And if you read that passage, you'll see how selective we can be from certain sins versus how much we excuse other kinds of sin. Um, And understanding sin as coming from our heart, that's what cuts us off from God that's what disconnects us from God which is so important to realize and remember so the gospel that we sing about and are so thankful for it's good news it legitimately it indeed is good news but to fully embrace all of the good that there is is that we've got to talk about some bad news in the process and that's what I think Luke seven thirty six through 50 really brings into focus for us we get a glimpse of one of these rare encounters between Jesus the Pharisee and a sinner in which this matter is addressed. From this passage, we see Jesus lifting up this sinful woman. By no means excusing her sin, but he lifts her up. He exalts her by, by every measure of the word. He exalts this woman, but he humbles this Pharisee. More specifically, his goal is to bring an awareness to the Pharisee that the sinful woman clearly has. So uh, there's a couple of things. There's, there's some multi-layered things that I want us to take away from this passage, and I've got them in your notes. There's two things that we'll cover real quickly. On the second page at the bottom, the first thing that we pull from this passage is by no means is Jesus saying sin is not a big deal. He's not excusing this woman's sin. He's bringing to the surface this Pharisee's equally sinful heart. But the good news of this passage is our sin is great, but God's grace is greater, All sin is equally vile and offensive to God, yet Jesus is God's all-in-one solution, sent to forgive us and to save us. And here's the thing about this sinful woman that makes her stand out compared to the Pharisee. She is fully aware of her sin, but she totally and properly adores her Savior. And that's why Jesus marvels at her, and that's why Jesus exalts her, because she's aware of her sin that society has made her even more aware of, but she has understood that Jesus is her Savior. As Romans 3 tells us, there is no difference. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but there also is no difference in the gift that God has given or offers and gives to everybody. What does Romans 3 say? There is no distinction. All have sinned. This Pharisee and the woman that they condemned. The gift of God is equally universal. We are all saved by the same grace. If you go read Romans 5, Romans 6, you see Paul talk about how, yes, our sin is great, but the grace of God abounds even more. And he talks about how we should yield our bodies, yield our lives to God that we might as an instrument be played properly to the right tune, not done uh, an injustice by sin. So the second thing from this passage is if all sin is equally sinful, then no sinner is more or less offensive than another. Now this is the, the pill that's maybe harder to swallow for people that I, I don't blame you. It gets hard sometimes and we're trying to be the best we can be and we sometimes are tempted to look over our shoulder at somebody who maybe doesn't care as much as we do and maybe isn't trying as much as we do and maybe we wonder, why should we give them a pass? But here's why it's a big deal. If God sees sinners on the same plane, then why do we see, still see through a religious lens that says otherwise? And you know why I think that we're tempted to do this? And I, to, I say this from the rooftops a lot because I want you to know what, what the devil is trying to do and what religion is trying to do because it's trying to combat what God wants to do in your heart. This is a tempting trap set up by the enemy to cause us to turn away from Jesus. Any time you turn away from Jesus and begin to look at someone else and begin to compare yourself to them, well, I'm not as bad as them, and I don't sin like them, and they're worse than me, and, you know, hey, you want to pick on me, but look at the rest of the world, how bad off they are. They're the problem. That's why the church is in the mess it's in, or that's why the country or the world's in the mess it's in. You know, why is it all on me? What about them? That that little voice is the enemy trying to get you to turn from Jesus. Because the second you try, the second you determine somebody else's sin worse than your own, you know what happens? You open the door for a prideful and self-righteous spirit to take hold of us, take hold of you. I'm not saying you're not right in what you're not. You know the rationale isn't true. But here's the thing: when you turn away from Jesus and begin to try to play rank and file with sin and sinners. You open the door for a prideful and self-righteous spirit to take hold of you. And that will replace every ounce of God's grace and every ounce of God's mercy in your spirit and will ruin your walk with God. If we want to experience the fullness of Jesus, we cannot take any chances like that, which is what the Pharisees were so good at. Now, that, this passage, those two points are the best lens, the best I can give you to help you navigate what's going on in this passage. So let's break it down a little more. The sinful woman carries a great amount of gratitude and love for Jesus because of the gift he gave her. I think we can all agree on that. The gift, of course, is salvation. This, the, the, the salvation, the contrast between her and the Pharisee cannot be more stark because she understands what he offers and the Pharisee doesn't. The Pharisee, this is big, the Pharisee still looked within himself for righteousness, even though he was sitting beside righteousness embodied. The Pharisee was still trusting in himself while she was totally trusting in Jesus. That's the difference. That's why Jesus told that parable about the Pharisee, be, you know, saying, "Hey, I'm glad I'm not like that guy over there. I never I've always tied and I've always attended and I've never done anything wrong." And then Jesus said, then there's the person beating their chest, holding their head down, saying, "Forgive me, I'm a sinner." And then he said, "Which one of you which one of these do you think is saved?" That's the word he uses. "Which one of you which one of these do you think is justified? Which one of these do you think if they die tonight is in the presence of God?" And he said, "Let me just go ahead and spool it for you. It's not the Pharisee. It's the man that beat his chest and said, forgive me, I'm a sinner. It's the sinful woman that fell at the feet of Jesus, not the Pharisee. As a result, this woman is more engaged in and found more joy in worship. And that's why why the religion was so dead. That's why religion is so dead. It's so lifeless. It's so boring, because when you don't realize what God has done for you, you have no reason to worship him. And when you're bringing stuff to God and saying, hey, look at me, <laughs> there's no joy in that. You're just aggravated because someone isn't recognizing you as much as you think they should. That's, that you don't realize what God is doing and what God offers you. And that's what this Pharisee, that's what his problem was. That's why he was so bitter. Now, as we celebrate Christmas, there's no better time to be refreshed and renewed around the true gospel flip back a few pages if you will to Luke 2 we've you probably can, can quote this you don't have to look at it if you don't want to but Luke 2 10 through 14 I think is is if somebody says hey give me the gospel if somebody says hey can I give me four or five verses that just explains the gospel and and not just the theology of it but the practicality of it how did it happen what you know what's the whole story I think these four verses are enough to tell somebody the gospel full 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 detail so Luke two verses ten through fourteen. This is when the angel comes to the shepherds. Uh, remember, the angels went to the shepherds, not to the temple. They went to the outcasts, not to the insiders. That's a whole another dichotomy that we see similar to Luke seven. The angel says, "Don't be afraid. For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you: you will be you will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger." And suddenly there was the with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying or singing glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. So the gospel, I think that this passage is fitting because it includes worship, because the gospel should always be accompanied with worship, genuine worship, which is what we see there in 13 and 14. But a couple of things here. God sent us a Savior. Isn't that what verse 10 and 11 tell us? For there is born to you this day a Savior, born not of man but of God through a miracle, could not have been done otherwise, could not be explained otherwise. God sent a savior because I can't say this more boldly there is there was no possible way for us to find him or be saved in and of ourselves so what is the gospel God sent us a savior why is that important because we were not asked to go find our own help or make our own way we don't need a little bit of help we don't need a little bit of assistance we don't need someone to help us get back on the right path we need a total intervention from god that's what christmas is all about amen that's the gospel the incarnation is god's intervention god became one of us and came to give us what we could not get ourselves or obtain on our own It's not God helps those who help themselves. It's not try a little bit and he'll meet you halfway. It's not, well, you got to do this, this, and that, and maybe God will respond. It's we were unable to get anywhere on our own, so God said, just stop trying. I'm on my way. That's the gospel. That's what Christmas is all about. But the reason why I think Christmas especially communicates that, because otherwise you can point at any point of Jesus' ministry. God's journey to save us began with a baby. He came vulnerable and unassuming to confound our world's obsession with appearance and accomplishment. Because we are obsessed with that, aren't we? He did not come with a red carpet rollout, with a, with a royal, you know, golden, you know, crib in the temple. He came unassuming and vulnerable. The first sign that salvation has come is a baby is wrapped in clothes in a feeding trough because they did not want him anywhere near the end. That's the gospel. God sent a baby. God's way of making a means and making a way of salvation, we could have never imagined that, could we? This should cause us to seek him with our whole heart because clearly his ways are higher and his ways are different than ours. So if you ever think you've figured it out or you can explain it, you probably are on the wrong path when it comes to understanding the heart of God because God started with a baby in a feeding trough. Number three, salvation is meant to produce great joy and bring peace to us because its message is favor and goodwill from God. We can rejoice because we find in Christ the greatest treasures of all. We find a peace, we receive, we have a peace because we receive from Christ the greatest of all gifts. So we have joy because Christ is our great treasure. We have peace because Christ is our great gift. He brings us into a relationship with God while doing away with our sin. He forgives us and he delivers us. Romans 5 says we have been justified by faith, therefore we have peace with God. Hebrews 4 says we can come boldly before the throne of grace and find mercy in the time of need. So in light of this, as we wrap up, in light of this, why are we not all as humble and as devoted to Jesus as this sinful woman was? If our hearts don't look like hers, then we need to get to that place. Don't you agree? Jesus tells this parable to Simon. He says, I want, you to help, I want you to help you understand the difference between you and this woman. Simon thought himself as a mild sinner. That's what the parable is about. The one owed 50, the one owed 500. Simon thinks that his sin is just mild. And he thinks, you know what? All I need is a little religion. I can, I can good works my way out of this. I don't need to be totally overhauled by God. I don't need to be on my face before him as if I'm at the mercy of his salvation. I just need a little religion. I don't say anything bad when nobody's listening, right? I don't do anything wrong. I don't think any, I don't you know, go anywhere wrong, right? No, nobody knows what I've got going on in my head. Of course, Jesus did, but hey, not everyone's like Jesus and thankfully, I'm a pretty good person. I just need a little bit of religion. This woman knew her sin was great. Oh, by the way, the world reminded her her sin was great. She didn't need that reminder, but she knew. Yet in Christ, she found love, hope, joy, and peace. Her burden was lifted. And this is really good. The world's judgment was made null and void. You know, maybe the greatest proof of her salvation in this passage is she boldly went in the presence of these Pharisees and worshiped her Savior, knowing good and well they could have killed her. And maybe even worse, that they wanted to. Simon would never have this same experience until he confessed his own sin and embrace Jesus as his Savior. When he says who is forgiven a little, loves a little, Jesus is not saying that Simon didn't need to be forgiven as much as the woman. He's trying to get Simon to realize, you think you're only a little bit far. Therefore, you don't really love me because you don't see me as a Savior. You see me as an assistant, as a helper, as a religious figure. And Jesus says, you know what? And for that matter, I would rather have 100 Sinful women, guilty as they may be, than any one of you. That's what it means to accept Jesus as our Savior. Real quickly, at the end of your notes, you can look at these passages that really break this down, but what does it mean to accept Jesus as Savior? And I think we ought to be talking about this this week because this is the week we celebrate that a Savior has come, right? Number one, to accept Jesus as our Savior means we delight in him as our way to God. I mean, he has given you an open line, open fellowship, secure connection to God. That should make us over the moon, right? So knowing that he is your way to God, trust in him, talk to him, turn to him. He, he says, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Don't leave that door open and not walk through it, right? Because that is available to us. He is available to us. He is our Savior. Delight in him. Pray that we would find our delight in him more than anything else. Listen, I've talked about this before, but if there is joy to be found in Jesus that outrivals anything of this world, we know know what it's like to have fun in this world. We all have things that we love. We all have people that we love, things we love to do. If we can have fun, like C.S. Lewis says, making mud pies in the sand, what more is available to us on the sea with our Savior? Number two, we should denounce any and all idols or rituals that we formerly clung to for peace, joy, hope, or approval. So if he's your savior, denounce anything that you formerly or you are tempted to turn to for peace, joy, hope, or approval. Jesus is the only one that gives you that. So denounce any and all idols or rituals that tempt you into trusting in them. We did a whole sermon on that a couple weeks ago, so go back and check that if you want more. Number three, devote ourselves to him. If he's our savior, then we need to devote ourselves to him because through him we please God and we find our purpose, we fulfill our purpose. Matthew 25 tells that parable of the, the, the king who gave talents to his servants and those two use those talents, use those blessings for the glory of God and for their own joy. Lastly, we need to determine to love one another as he has loved us. Because clearly, what was going on between the sinners and the Pharisees is not acceptable in the kingdom of God. They hated these people. They hated these sinners. And if God and sinner can be reconciled, why can't sinner and sinner be, sinner be reconciled? I know why. Because we don't want to be reconciled. Right? It's easy easy enough. There's no place for that in the kingdom of God. Now, again... There's always gonna be people that say, hey, I'm right, you're wrong, I don't wanna talk, and that's fine, but according to what lies is in you, Romans 12, according to what's in your heart, we better be seeking reconciliation. If Christmas, if we sing God and sinner reconciled, if that's the Christmas story, then sinner and sinner better be reconciled as far as what's on our shoulders. So the question is, In light of what we've learned from this sinful woman who preaches the gospel without ever saying a word, but we can see it in her behavior, right? And Simon says a lot more and that condemns him, whereas she says nothing, but she showed her worship so powerfully. So in light of all that, the question is, is Jesus our savior? Are we enjoying all that Christmas has to offer like this sinful woman clearly was so i pray this year we can unwrap and embrace and put on display his gift of salvation unto us a savior has come and with him we found hope and love peace and joy may its fullness be felt in us and through us the world sees one of two things from the church something the Pharisee was displaying or something the woman was displaying. May we not be in the Pharisee category. May we be like this sinful woman because she clearly had unwrapped the Christmas gift, the gift that kept on giving. May our hearts display that unto us, a savior has been born. May that bring us to the feet of Jesus and may that bring joy unspeakable to our hearts and through our tongues, let's sing to the world this week that God has brought salvation to everybody, no matter how far you may be away. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for Christmas. Thank you that Christmas confounds every bit of man's wisdom. Thank you that Christmas doesn't allow for there to be a pathway to you through some mechanics or some engineering of man. Christmas makes it very clear that the only way we're getting to God is through the baby in a manger. Through the Savior who was born for us. And if we have found salvation in him, he will take us from that manger to life eternal. He will take us by way of the cross where we deny ourselves, take up that cross and follow him and find in him delight and joy that this world cannot compare to. We devote ourselves to him and we determine that we might live that life of love and joy and peace with our hope in him alone. Father, would you fill our hearts with the Christmas joy this year as we sing about God and sinner reconciled. Let us first know what it means to be reconciled to you and let us go paint the town red with what it means to be reconciled with one another because this is the Christmas story. And may we be like this sinful woman adoring you for the gift you've given us all. We ask all this in Jesus' name, amen.